Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Brothers, the word is self-explanatory. Two males born of the same mother. But brothers are forged in all different ways in reality in this world. And sometimes, as we talked about occasionally, actual physical familial brothers don't always get along as well as, say, imbalanced brothers like me, Ray Coob. And me, Marcus Goldman. In the words of the legendary Chuck Klosterman, they were classically trained musicians who made music for getting hammered in the parking lot. A metal band that rarely played metal. A legendary live band criticized for terrible live performances. A caricature of leering masculinity that proved unusually inclusive to female audiences. The embodiment of American exceptionalism driven by two Dutch Indo immigrants who barely spoke English when they arrived in Pasadena. They were copied constantly and no one got it right. Chuck got it right right there with that quote about Van Halen. A band that was immortalized in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What can I do for you, gentlemen? You the guy with the Van Halen tickets? That could be. How much you want for something in the first ten rows? Twenty bucks a piece. Those tickets are only twelve fifty. But I'm buying. <laughs> you know, it's funny they weren't born here, and it took some of us who were Van Halen fans a little while to learn that in the age before the internet. But they were brought here by their parents, as we lads, and set up in a way. They almost had to be rock and rollers, right? Pasadena, California, in the in the aftershocks as the Beach Boys are becoming superstars. There's music everywhere. There's music in all the garages, especially in Pasadena. Uh, wasn't there a song about a little old lady from Pasadena? There was, right? Yes, there was. It's the little old lady from Pasadena. Alex is a couple years older, even though it always felt like Eddie was the same age or maybe even sometimes put himself forward as the older brother. And Alex always acceded to Ed. Ed recognized that Alex was his big brother and always would include him and go to him for advice and thoughts. But Alex would give in to Eddie because he knew that his brother was the modern embodiment of Beethoven or I don't know. Bach, whoever you want to put in the category of classical artists, that he was the guitar version of that in the next bedroom down the hall. The relationship of these two brothers is remarkable because we've talked about sibling rivalries in the past, and you can't put these guys in that category because of their close relationship. I can guarantee you they had disagreements in issues regarding business and music and areas like that, but they always worked it out and they never made this big public stink about it or created any drama. They just solved their problem and moved forward. Staying focused on Ed and Alex, a little story that I read in their standard bio kind of reminded me of the chemistry between the Van Halen brothers when they first started out 
Eddie was the one playing drums and Alex was playing guitar. And what Ed didn't know is that when he was out making money to help pay for the drum kit that he bought, Alex was practicing on it and he was getting pretty good. So at some point when that all came out, instead of it becoming one of those head-to-head problems, Mom, he's playing my drums, like in that movie Step Brothers. You ever see that movie? (laughs) Yeah. Instead, Ed told Alex, okay, you play drums, I'll play the guitar. And they resolved it that way. Now, if they resolved a lot of these other issues that they would have later, especially in that period in 1984, 85, when things started to go a little sideways, that would be a good reason why they moved forward instead of folding. Don't you think? I do. But for the moment, we're in 1964. The imbalanced history of rock and roll, Pasadena, California. There's a band called, believe it or not... The Broken Combs. (laughs) Well, if you saw their hair back in the early days, they probably broke a lot of combs. (laughs) As someone who has pretty smooth hair, I can attest to the fact in those days I always had a comb in my back pocket. And occasionally you'd lose a tooth or two, right? But you still kept using it until it got bad, right? Yeah. And was it one of those long combs with the long handle? That used to stick real high out of your pocket like some of those cats had. No, I'm going classic 50s, 60s style little comb. Sometimes you get the short one so it would fit in your jeans pocket or your pants pocket better. Gotcha. (laughs) Anyway, so they got popular. It started to get popular around Pasadena. I don't know if any little old ladies showed up, but um, their first name change came when they became the Trojan Rubber Company. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a modern alternative band, though. No one will ever get the joke. Wink, wink. Right? (laughs) Boys and hormones. In 1972, they changed the name of the group to Genesis. And I wondered this week while we were getting ready, what if the band from England that was already signed and recording had folded early on and never continued to the point where they were known in 1972? Wow. And Van Halen, instead of going with the name they ended up with, became Genesis and then stayed named Genesis so that they became equated with hard rock and not explorative progressive rock it's an interesting angle to look at but i still think at the end of the day they would have changed their name to van halen i just i think that's where they would have ended up i'm thinking they're in the garage they're all practicing and they want to change their name from trojan rubber company (laughs) (laughs) and somebody and they're all getting stoned somebody says genesis well maybe they weren't getting stoned then it was 72 so it's david lee roth was so, and then somebody says, Genesis, and they go, oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, let's do Genesis, and they started thinking about that, and then somebody told them, you know, one of their friends, oh, dude, there's a band there on Charisma, this guy, Peter Gabriel, man, you guys got to get caught up. I'm sure somewhere in there the discussion was, well, what we're going to do is going to be mammoth. And that's what they settled on as their name. And that's where uh, Wolfgang, Eddie's son, got the name for his band in tribute to Dad that he's released these days. Pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. 
And at that point, it was Eddie on vocals, too, and Mark Stone was the bassist. He's the first bassist that most of us know as playing with Van Halen. Yeah, they were a power trio at that time, kind of like Budgie. And as a young band with active glands, they needed a sound system, and that's how they met Dave. He wasn't uh, Diamond David Lee Roth, Van Halen then, you know. He was just Dave, and he had a PA. So they rented it from him, and he would tote it around and hook it up for their gigs, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually they said, you know, we could save the 10 bucks, maybe make 20 more, pay Dave, have a PA, and have him in the band. I guess he kind of grew on them a bit, and he was certainly a funny guy. He had to be funny before he was in the band. I think it's just in the blood, right? Yeah, I think he's always been Dave that we have seen in the media, that kind of goofy, party-go-lucky guy. Now, I don't know how much it plays into it, like if he was there and experienced any of it, but his uncle used to own Cafe Wa in New York up until 1968, and that's all the time when uh, people we've talked about played there, people like Hendrix, right? Yeah. Right there on Bleecker Street, New York. And I guess when they met him, he was in a band called the Red Ball Jets, We'll have to look on YouTube and see if there's any music by a band called the Red Ball Jets. Hey, you know, when you're young guys and you're in a band, Marcus, eventually everybody gets to a crossroad. Sometimes people get to it together. Sometimes they get to it uh, individually. But Mark Stone came to a crossroad with the band and they realized that they were way more serious than he was about really doing it. And they were, you know, dead jailer rock and roll, I think. They were really that way about it, even though they had options in life. That's the way they were looking at it. So Mark Stone goes, and in comes a guy that I did not know had three names. Did you know that Michael Anthony was Michael Anthony Soboleski? I was three days ago old when I learned that. But, you know, a friend of Eddie's, these things happen. People get together, they do a couple gigs, and the next thing you know, they're calling themselves a band. And Mammoth was a band, and they started to make their way. And apparently Diamond Dave, you're right, Diamond Dave eventually said, you know, we should call the band Van Halen. I'm going to see him. Dude, it sounds a lot cooler. Uh, It's going to really help us. Van Halen sound really good. Pack check to the audience and get the girls. And we'll still be able to do our dances, the high schools and all this stuff. I could just almost see it happening. And then it happens, right? Yeah, they were playing bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. They were playing any backyard party they could play in those early days. That's what life was in the L.A. scene, I guess, in those days. And the strip was still there. Whiskey A Go-Go was still there. All these things influenced the swagger of Van Halen. Can we talk about the swagger? They had swagger from the get-go. They knew where they were headed and what they wanted to do. And these guys kept the momentum going. They kept growing and uh, getting the attention of people. People that can help you to make a demo tape or can write about your band, like Robert Hilburn from the L.A. Times, who wrote an article from early January 1977 is when it appeared. So he's talking about Van Halen at the end of 76, probably when the article was written. And if you think about what happened for Van Halen in 76, they get this article, they do the demo. They did it the old school way, handing out cassettes and doing all the promotion themselves. They really, really stuck their nose to the grindstone and did all of the dirty work. So they had a really good feel, I think, for all areas of the business.
I know they were naive and young as well, but they really had a good feel for how things worked because of all the gritty work that they did to make themselves known. And I think that gave them a greater appreciation for when things happen. Like going back for a second to the, um, the Robert Hilburn article, um, Rodney Bingenheimer was a tastemaker. He saw the McGazaris that summer of 76 and got Gene Simmons of Kiss to see him. He gave them the money, I think, to help produce uh, a big regular demo, more than just your little studio demo. He even said they should think about changing their name. And and I didn't know about this before we started doing our research to Daddy Longlegs. <laughs> I didn't know wasn't, that. Wasn't, wasn't Kiss's <laughs> name originally? Yeah, it was Wicked Lester. It was Wicked, Wicked Lester. Lester. Can you imagine? Can you Wicked imagine Lester the, the and Daddy Longlegs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're reading my mind, man. Seriously, Wicked that's a horror Lester movie from the seventies. That's a B horror movie. <laughs> oh Jesus. It's interesting because Gene Simmons was in the audience to see a band called Buzz and Mammoth opened up for him and they blew him away. One of the things that he said at that time is the kid had his hands flying all over the guitar doing things I could have never imagined. So Eddie was truly the backbone, the show, he was what was going to really propel the band to the stratosphere. When you're in a band and one of the members is extraordinarily talented, it always shows itself. Everybody knows about it. They may not discuss it much. It may be the source of some friction. But when you're in a band with somebody like Eddie Van Halen, you have to recognize immediately what's what, who's who. (laughs) And Ted Templeman did. He saw them perform at one of their Hollywood gigs, and he started to try to get the people at Warner Brothers interested in them. And if you think about where Warner's was at that point, after struggling a little bit in the earlier part of the 70s, sure, they had Neil Young and some other good things on the reprise label, but it wasn't really until the two Fleetwood Mac records with Buckingham and Nicks that they really began to uh, accelerate their arc as a rock label. Warner Brothers really took off, and finding Van Halen built onto the Doobie Brothers and the other artists that were with Warner Brothers at that point in the decade. And their launch uh, really was well orchestrated. And as far as the industry standards would go, Uncle Gene, mm-hmm. you know, he and Wicked Lester are willing to let you kids come and open for us. It'll be a great show. Yeah. That whole story about, you know, the time they spent in New York City at Electric Lady Studios, the band actually came back to California disappointed because the Kiss manager who got the tape from Gene tossed it into the trash. Wow. And it was Mo Austin, Ted Templeman, who saw them play live that were just like, these guys are the next thing. And there they signed them that night to the deal. And their first big tour, once they got signed and recorded, the beginning, like we're in the beginning phases as they opened up for Montrose and Journey. And they blew both of those bands away on the stage. I think we need to double check something with the research department on that. Because I, I think I, I know who the person was that tossed that demo. Oh, yeah. So research department, get on it. Get us the information as soon as you can. Who was Kiss's manager in uh, that point in the 70s? I I'm no wondering. Idea. I know, but I think I do. And I think I actually knew the guy a little bit. So he didn't get it. But the guys at Warner Brothers did. And they immediately went to work on what became that beautiful first album. Oh, my God, Marcus. I know. 
before they released that album, they sent a five-song EP out to California radio stations, and the California radio stations jumped on it. The five songs on that EP were Running With The Devil, Eruption, Ice Cream Man, Jamie's Crying, and You Really Got Me. If that didn't win you over, I don't know. But uh, rock radio in the 70s had started to get a little softer uh, based on the artist releases and what was coming their way. It wasn't like it was AC music. Nobody was going to mistake it for mom's radio station. But this was different. And anybody who was in radio in 1978, when they first got this, you knew that you were going to be playing something different. Sure, it was a kink song, but wow. Mm -hmm. If you look at it, it's probably the most powerful or one of the most powerful debuts in rock and roll history. What we have to do at some point, Marcus, is look up all the amazing debut albums like we're talking about right here and do something about them. That'd be a whole lot of fun. Now, before we go too far past this, I want to talk because you, you Really Got Me was the first single, and, and, and they were sent out to radio, and of course, it didn't have Eruption on it. But in the days of vinyl, when you queued it up, you had the option of going back that little extra minute and a half, two minutes, and letting it fly on Eruption, which is exactly what FM radio did, and it increased the impact because immediately you're hearing the two together in the way that they and Ted Templeman intended it, and it totally made sense, and it showed Eddie at his best. I mean, I think in some ways, those moments are some of his best. We have the moment with this album, Marcus, that we have with every great debut album. We don't know it sometimes when we first do it, but the moment when you take the cellophane off the vinyl album, you pull the sleeve out from the inside and you drop the needle. And in this case, on Running With The Devil. (laughs) I'll never, ever forget the first time I heard Van Halen as a kid and being blown away. KZYRWMMR in Denver. And DJ came on and said something to the effect of, we got this new band called Van Halen. What do you think? It was some of the most amazing ear candy. The next two and a half minutes changed your life. Absolutely. Think about the fact that they were doing something completely different than anybody out there. really even though it was quote unquote heavier at that time and more edgy at that time it made you feel so good and it really made you want to move and dance and it just was so happy feel good rock and roll that like toot said if it's got positive vibes to it you remember it it sticks with you and this stuck with us. I mean, we were all drawing the Van Halen logo on our peachy folders in 78 at 12 years old. So let me tell right, you how, how much. All right, how far into the podcast are we? What time? What's the time? 28 say? minutes. All right. Oh, man. I had 26 minutes in the podcast pool about how long it would take you to reference peachy folders in this Van Halen episode. Damn, I, I missed it by two minutes. Two minutes. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you dick. 
<laughs> All the rock stations everywhere. I mean, I think we had three at that point in Philadelphia. It was Warner Brothers. It was the next big thing. And then if you heard more than just You Really Got Me, you were convinced almost immediately mm-hmm. by Running With The Devil, Ain't Talking About Love, Jamie's Crying. These songs all became AOR radio staples. They opened up for Black Sabbath on the last leg of the UK tour, and Ozzy said they blew us off the stage every night. It was so embarrassing. They kicked our asses. So they were already planning on being the top rock and roll band in the world at this point. All right, I want to make sure I have time. I just got the notice from the research team. They just sent me a text. Are we okay with time to the break? Yeah, we can do the break. All right, Kiss was managed from 1973 to 1982 by Bill LaCoyne, who is a legend in the business. I worked with him a little bit in the early 90s. He managed a band from South Jersey called Sick Vicky, and I got to know Bill a little bit then. And I always liked them. I know people have different opinions and everybody's very strongly opinionated, but uh, Bill always seemed like a pretty cool guy to me, but I never knew that he tossed the Van Halen demo. And I guess I would have asked him about it in the few conversations that we had. I would have asked him about it if I did, because that's the kind of pain in the ass kid that I was. (laughs) (laughs) I know you parched. No, I am. And we've got so many miles to go, but I did want to briefly talk about the changes at Singer before we go to the mid-roll and then come back and talk about all the albums. Um, We talked about Dave, and we'll talk more as we go through the albums about what happened there or what we think might have happened there. As Dave left in 1985 and the rock and roll world was thrown into a bit of a frenzy. It wasn't the creative part of working with him. I think we made some great music together. And uh, it was just living with the guy. He treated everybody like little lower than him including us in the band and you know that's that's not the way a band works when i read somebody putting it down and saying yeah that was no good ah that music stunk or anything that makes me feel like sad you know that's like somebody take you out to dinner and you think you had a great time and at the end of the night they go hey you know what i had a really lousy time and you know what you're lousy too but thanks for dinner well, I just want to say we we flipped the bill for all those dinners. <laughs> uh, the arrival of Sammy Hagar, and he stayed with the guys, and then he left. And um, my friend Gary Sharon from Extreme, I worked with them from the early days of my rocker show. They played the first Rockers Baller one-year anniversary concert. That's how tight we were with those guys. So I met and or know all the singers of Van Halen, a weird distinction to have in your rock and roll travels. When Sammy came in at first, there was a lot of uh, discussion that we'll get into again more in the second half about whether this was going to work. Will this work? This kind of melding together of parts. And we find out why it did and took Van Halen to new heights, including all of us who were writing about the records in the industry. So it is kind of weird, though, to say, hey, I knew the guy who tossed Van Halen's demo, but I didn't know that at the time. So, (laughs) Okay, all this has got me feeling very thirsty. And uh, why don't we uh, stop up and then come back and do some deeper digging into the albums and talk more about uh, our favorites. We can geek out a little bit. Sounds good. Oh, the thirst. You can feel it building as we're doing the first half of an episode, but man, I really need this pint in my hand that is brewed by Jeffrey in the back room right there at the brewery at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. 
I know you love your favorite brews there too, buddy. Absolutely. Which uh, pint do you have in your hand? I'm holding a pint of the Burrow Blonde, which is a nice cream. Oh, that's really good. It's a nice, lighter-tasting beer. I like the ESB, the Extra Special Bitters, uh, because of my affinity for it. And I've rarely found anything that even remotely is like the British bitters I originally fell in love with, other than what Jeff brews there at Crooked Eye. Some good beers at Crooked Eye. Another one to check out if you like ales is the Golden Eye. It's a clean ale, man. It is so nice. There's all kinds of flavors and all kinds of things, ciders and all kinds of beverages for you right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye Brewery. And the entertainment is going on, too. Marcus, they've moved the Blues Night to Wednesday nights. What? Yeah, Wednesdays at Crooked Eye. And it's always fun online or in the brew pub. Stop by or fill up your growlers in your crawler. Make sure you check out Crooked Eye Brewery's social media pages. That's where you find out if they have any new beers coming. If whatever's going on, it will be put on their social media pages. So check out Crooked Eye Brewery's social media pages. And the website is crookedeyebrewery.com. A great place, a local place that you can take with you. So take some with you wherever you go and spread the crooked eye love like we try to do here on the podcast. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. It's all about Van Halen. On this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, and one of the things we haven't even mentioned is something that's been on our minds and heavy in our hearts since October. And that's losing the genius of Eddie Van Halen. It's something that I don't talk about, but I think about a lot. I definitely don't talk about it very much either, but it's on my mind quite a bit, especially when listening to music, because Van Halen seems to always be out there, and they're always part of my big playlist. So Van Halen, hard loss surprising too i was so shocked when i found out that he passed away were you yeah i knew that he had been sick and eddie had had health issues dating back to when he first started having trouble with his hip but when i heard and i think i said this before on the podcast that valerie was coming around to see him yeah. 
few months before that, I thought, well, this might not be good. And then there were the Dave comments and other comments Mm -hmm. and some of the reports that we were seeing and things we were hearing. But I didn't think anything of it because he's only a couple of years older than me. And we had heard lots of different things about his health before and nothing ever came of it. So I wasn't thinking about it until the day it came down down the line. The shock, the sadness... You know, it was it was numbing to hear of his passing because his guitar, like Jimi Hendrix's guitar, like the Beatles' music, influenced an entire generation of musicians. You know what it felt like to me, similar? The emotions felt like when Prince died. Yeah. Because it was too young, too soon. What the fuck happened? Yeah. You know? And you're right. What Ed did for us all, we can't even estimate the impact we just know what it means to us what it means to me what it means to you and the people you know who love van halen as much or more than we do because there are people who are way more invested than even we are and i thought early on after uh, ed's passing uh, probably in 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 the hour or two afterwards i thought about my pal ike richmond who uh always did pr for uh the spectrum and the wells fargo center our big uh, arena in south philly until going out on his own. And this is a guy who was an over-the-top true Van Halen fan, but he had the access to give him the flyers that each had the uh, 5150. They gave him four of them. Mm-hmm. 5150 were the numbers, and they had their names on even. There's a picture somewhere. Eichel sent it to me once he hears that we're talking about it. A Van Halen in flyers jerseys uh, on stage with the numbers spelled out for 5150. That's the kind of stuff that the true fans who are in the industry get to do. Just wanted to make sure I gave props to my buddy, Ike. Absolutely. I I can't tell you, man. I, I was lucky enough. There's pictures of me as a kid in, in my 20s uh, backstage with those guys. And it was the first pass with Sammy. There's pictures from the Monsters of Rock mm-hmm. in 88. Somewhere. I don't have one, but I'd, if anybody has one, I would love to get a picture of that. Sammy was pretty cool to me always. Still, I imagine would be if he saw me tomorrow. And always made me feel real included in everything. Monsters of Rock backstage, Van Halen, Top of the World, Ma, and there's Sammy giving you hugs. And it felt so good to be part of that and be in the middle of all that. That's also the day that the idea for the Rocker Show was born at the Monsters of Rock, thanks to Van Halen. That's crazy. So, And when I went to California one time, this is how you know that somebody really remembers you. I'm at a show at, uh, what's it, Shoreline Amphitheater, and, 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 and I'm backstage with all my friends from Warner's because I was there for something else. And I go in, and he looks at me and goes, you're not from here. What are you doing here? That's how our conversation started that day. And that's the kind of guy he is, too, Sammy That's Hager. awesome. And then the third guy, like I mentioned, I knew Gary Sharon a bit, too, uh, from the earliest days of their band. We did interviews, and uh, they did a show for us for our Rockers anniversary. And the triumvirate, the unholy triumvirate, Dave set the tone, though, man. Dave was the guy. And, and I didn't meet Dave until years later when he was on a solo pass. Yeah, and his, he had his rhinestone uh, jacket on, like an aqua blue rhinestone jacket with a cowboy hat. And it was just a nonstop chatterbox, great interview, cheesesteaks, the whole nine yards. That's hilarious. So it's cool to be intersected with these people and to to have uh, some fun on your resume, too. You know? Did you ever get to say any words or share any words with Alex? Because he's pretty stoic and pretty silent, doesn't say a lot, kind of like Neil Peart in that way. 
I always thought amongst the fans, one of the arguments was who's the more quiet one, Alex or Eddie. And, uh, I'd have to say Alex, no, not much, a little bit with Ed, a little chatter with Ed and Mike and, uh, hanging with Sam, uh, interfacing with Sam a little bit. Uh, but no, not, not really so much. Uh, you're right. He is kind of quiet. In fact, uh, just recently made comments uh, about the business in regards to, you know, putting context on, on Eddie's passing. So mm-hmm. he's not in the press very often. Let's just say that. I would love to have a conversation with him about playing music and about what they listened to growing up and the music that influenced them moving forward and all of that. I think that would be really fun. I think he would be I think he would have a lot of good stuff to say because Oh, I would love that. Cuz in my mind in a lot of ways when you think about it, he's the one driving the bus on all these records. The success of their first record doesn't really surprise the people who were in their inner circle, they knew what they had. I think the people at Warner Brothers knew what they had. But as happens with every band, after you make an amazing debut album, you go out and you tour and you kick the world square in the ass, you've got to follow it up. You've got to make another one that's going to kick their ass again. And that's exactly what they did, releasing the creatively titled Van Halen 2 in March of 1979. I'm out here about half the night. I'm thing is kind of like the Led Zeppelin thing? Did they get that they were one of the bands that could be good enough to, to put up four albums like no one had done since Zeppelin, maybe? I think that they knew that they were something special, and these first two albums, a lot of the songs were written and recorded together in some way, stage, or form in the first recording sessions, including some of those demos. So they had this huge array of music and were able to put it down. They learned a lot between one and two, and you hear, even though there are a lot of similarities, you do hear the growth of the band between one and two. And it also marked the development of the band on a tangible basis. The second record sold millions, right on the trail of selling millions off the first one. That's what they wanted to see, the heat behind the heat. And it got up to number six on the Billboard chart, That's pretty good for a band on their second album two years in a row. And more and more, it looks like these young upstarts are going to lean on their own shit to make it happen. All the songs written by all the guys other than You're No Good, which was always a fan favorite in concert, too. But songs like Dance the Night Away, Somebody Get Me a Doctor, Beautiful Girls, Bottoms Up. Jesus, you're talking about a list of songs there that AOR Radio just basically came in their pants over. They couldn't believe it. One song after another off this record delivered on the promise of what they'd given with the first album just a year before. Ugh. What a beast of an album. And at this point, they were on their way and almost the biggest rock and roll band in the world. After they wrote two, they were already being pressured by the label to get back into the studio and write. So they were on that early recording cycle of record, tour, record, tour, record. I'm sure the label would have been very happy if they were popping out albums every six months. But putting out an album every year or so kind of replaced that whole formula of the 60s. So that quickly got swept away. 
no longer even really being used by very many artists by the time Van Halen starts coming around. No, they faced the same thing that a lot of other bands did after two successful albums. They were on the hamster wheel, man, and they were just stuck on it. And the big question was, what were they going to do after delivering multi-platinum debut, multi-platinum second record, successful touring, growing, reputation, growing, and the answer is, well, we're going to bail out the boat, women and children first, right? Yeah. A sarcastic response to the pressure. Truly, and it was the first album where they had no material for and had to write the entire record from scratch. So being exhausted on tour, learning a lot, you see a little bit of a darker side on this record than the party, drink, beer, have a lot of sex vibe that you got on the first two records. Oh, well, like with songs like Everybody Wants Some. <laughs> and The Cradle Will Rock, Loss of yeah, Control. Exa- which are exactly what the, the, the main focus of what you were talking about on the first two records. But there's <laughs> other stuff, too, and, and the different feels start to come in because, face it, not everybody's going to rock and party 24-7. And you start to get the stuff like, you know, Romeo Delight and some different feels. Oh, yeah. Take your whiskey home. This is a really, if you... Yeah, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. But Take Your Whiskey Home is exactly in the same pocket with the first two records. Dave said it best back in the day. Before we get, because we don't seem to be coming at this from the same same point of view. Yeah. Dave gives us perspective on all things. Remember that, Marcus. Yeah. What he said was, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, everybody's got a little Van Halen in them. True. It comes out with Take Your Whiskey Home and Everybody Wants Some, mm-hmm. Urge to Party, Urge to Have Sex, mm-hmm. and The Cradle Will Rock. But you do start to see some thoughtful stuff and different feels on the third record. I like the sarcastic angle of the title because, okay, if we're going to have to all bail out women and children first, and that's often what happens on that third record when bands fall on their face. True. Many have gotten to that point and then failed, and they didn't. And the rock press seemed to be a lot more lukewarm about this album from what I read, I guess. And The Cradle Will Rock was the only hit single off of the record. But I'm sure, and I know in Denver, AOR played probably five or six songs off of this record. But yeah, the rock press seemed to change their tune a little bit towards Van Halen because it wasn't the light, fluffy party music that the first two records were. And that doesn't change with their fourth album, Fair Warning. They continue to think as much as they rock, and the sales aren't as big. The songs, those radio hits that we talk about, aren't just jumping out there the way they did off the first few records. Mean Street gets a lot of play. Unchained still gets a lot of play even today. There's a song, there's a song by uh, Van Halen, and in the middle of it, Dave's in there, and Ed's here, about to play a solo. And I thought the thing was over. I mean, I didn't like what was going on. And Dave goes, he said something. And I said, come on, Dave, give me a break. Knowing that would interrupt him. And Dave goes, one break, coming up. So Ed goes, what? This is a true story. I I thought it was just, that would normally go on tape. Oh, it's called Unchained. Hey, man, that suit is you. Woo-wee. You'll get some leg tonight for a show. 
And for depth tracks, you know, songs like So This Is Love, still rocking. Mm-hmm. Still, still get some there's play. Also, and there's still songs with some thoughtfulness in them. So that's where these things kind of start to balance out. And I think it's the creative process. And that's why it never caused me to really veer away from Van Halen when the records weren't one bigger than the other Beatles-like. Because I thought, these guys are in it for the long haul. They've got some ideas. They're now to the point where they're being challenged to grow creatively, and Mm -hmm. they're doing it. And in between Women and Children First and Fair Warning, Eddie met Valerie Bertinelli. She saw him on the back of her brother's album cover, went to see Van Halen at a show in Shreveport, Louisiana. You're a terrific kid. I'm proud of you. Best camper award three years in a row. Honor roll. Class treasurer. Whippy. I miss excitement. I'm the only kid I know who goes to confession and has to make up sins. They started dating a very unusual romance. She was that cute little sweet innocent girl from what was it one day at a time. He was that bad boy hedonistic rock and roller and eight months later they were married. I remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) I remember it too. You know, life starts to grow and change and eventually the wolf man shows up and he is such a cool kid. He is a neat kid. I met him when he played with Tremonti up at... Bam's Club in Westchester, and he was a really nice kid. Pleasant, really easygoing, and I'm glad that he's got some of his father's talent and can play the way he does. One of my favorite things is Eddie and Wolfie at the Tool Show, and they're just hanging out, and somebody comes along, one of the Tool fans comes along and wants uh, Eddie to take a picture of him, the, the fan, with his with the stage pre-show stage set behind him so like i want to get a picture with the stage hey hey old guy can you take this picture for me sir and eddie's like yeah what the fuck and wolfie starts videoing the whole thing because he's like he's you can tell he's laughing because it's like he doesn't know who you are dad (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious can you imagine it the fact that the guy didn't know who eddie was hey yo guy take this great great moment in rock and roll it is and uh one of the last that we'll see of Edward Van Halen. Yeah. So. By the time they get to 1982, Van Halen is a household name in rock and roll. That album, uh, Diver Down, that came out in April. You know the, the flag for Diver Down mm-hmm. is, the, is the album cover, right? And do you think it was their way of saying, you know, hey, caution, uh, man down over here. Maybe the frictions were starting to manifest themselves. Yeah, I think Diver Down definitely was part of that because they were planning on, after the Fair Warning record and tour, taking a year off to completely unwind. And then David Lee Roth got antsy and got them in the studio and they recorded Oh Pretty Woman. And that got the ball rolling again for them to start making diver, diver Down. Dave's comment about the whole flag thing was there's something going on that's not apparent to your eyes. And that's true when you have a Diver Down, right? When there's something going on below the surface. But, you know, it's all about Team Van Halen, bro. Yeah, and that Diver Down, uh, the tour they went on for Diver Down was the Hide Your Sheep tour. I was more focused on songs like Where Have All the Good Times Gone. Yep. And then you've also got you know classics like Little Guitars, then Happy Trails, their I version know. of the Roy Rogers theme. 
I I know people who used it as their farewell theme every time they were on the air for years. A bomba dee bomba Oh yeah. The clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny That song's gotten tons of play in bits and segments and a great way for them to end the record. It's also a little lighter than the previous two records and closer to the vein of one and two, but the press really kind of panned a diver down pretty hard as well. Alex and Eddie's father, Jan Van Halen, played the clarinet on Big Bad Bill. What? Yep. That's cool, because I know it's a musical family thing. Do you think it was weird... All through the year 1983, to be recording an album you were going to call 1984, do you think the vibe was strained? I don't think the vibe was strained by the name. I think the vibe was strained by the drugs and the booze and some of the other issues that they had. The political corners. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of that. And you always knew that Eddie and Alex, whatever side Eddie was on, Alex was always going to back him up and vice versa, no matter what. Uh, Then you do understand the basic Van Halen truth. Absolutely. Whatever side Eddie's on, I'm on. And vice versa. So, yes, absolutely. I'm sure it was crazy to be in the studio at that time because of the intense partying that those guys were all part of and they were really living that hedonistic rock and roll lifestyle full tilt during the time they were recording uh 1984 quincy jones called eddie van halen and asked him to come down to the studio and record the guitar solo for michael jackson's beat it which he was like yes i will gladly do that being controversial did it for free yeah didn't take any royalties he was just so honored to be called by quincy and to be able to play alongside michael jackson that he didn't give a crap plus he had boatloads of money at that time anyways and he helped transform that song and take it to that whole next level his guitar work didn't he play with janet jackson too probably i'll have to look into that research department research department I'm always looking to see what was going on in the studio while they were making the 1984 album because it could portend to the future worsening of tensions that led to Dave leaving the band in 1985. DLR snuck away at some point and recorded a loungy rock version of California Girls. He had been secretly doing he had been secretly doing a solo record on the side. 
And when they were flying to Europe on the uh, 84 tour on the Concord, David Lee Roth played him the demo, and it pretty much was the ceiling of fate for David Lee Roth to be out of the band because Eddie was fucking pissed. You know, stuff like that is going to seal your fate eventually. If you're having those kind of things happen behind the other guy's backs, Mm -hmm. those kind of things break trust. And the trust inside a band isn't always, but in a band like Van Halen, the trust inside, it's it's, it's the circle of trust that like from Meet the Fockers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and once you're outside that circle, things change. And that often leads to bands breaking up, imploding, or members leaving, and which is what to have happen when Diamond Dave splits. It was August of 1985, Eddie confirmed that David Lee Roth had quit the band in the spring of 1985. Flash from the research department, Janet Jackson, Black Cat, featuring Eddie Van Halen on guitar. So he did uh, did give that performance as well as uh, Beat It With Michael Jackson. How about that? We should look up and see what else uh, Eddie Van Halen has played on. I'm sure he's got a few more uncredited performances as well. You suggest a wonderful idea, my dear Marcus. I'm thinking that, yeah, we're doing the whole episode here about Van Halen, but maybe we should do an episode about Eddie sometime and just take the time and talk about Ed. Or maybe even do one about each of the uh, individual members. That would be kind of fun. If you're going to go out... Might as well go out on a high note, and that's exactly what happens with 1984. Pretty much every song is solid. Huge hits like Jump and Panama and I'll Wait, Hot for Teacher. You know, and every song is just really great. The album sells well, they do well, and then boom. And for a lot of fans, it was, well, that's that. Everybody thought, well, it's a pretty good run. Those first four albums, five, six albums. Put you in a pantheon of bands that not many bands get to be considered for, let alone gain entrance to. Eddie got an idea for Van Halen to move forward. One day he was out driving his Lamborghini and he saw a Ferrari. And it made him think of a guy who sang a song called I Can't Drive 55. And if I'm not mistaken, that cat had a red Ferrari at that time. The Red Rocker? Yep. Red Ferrari? Makes sense to me. If it's not, if it's not, that's what we're writing when we do the movie. When we write the movie, that's red in a Red Rocker, Red Ferrari. It's got to be done that way. So he actually called Sammy and asked him to jam with the band and maybe join Van Halen. And Sammy replied that he thought Van Halen had broken up and he was getting ready to reach out to Eddie and ask him if he wanted to join Sammy's band. Mighty righteous of him, you know. How Sometimes bizarre. two great minds had this, the right idea. Yep. It set the stage for what was to become. Well, you know, Eddie started setting up a studio at home, and the studio name came from the police code for, holy shit, send everybody! It's 5150, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And that's pretty much what happened in rock and roll terms when uh, Sammy... Hello, baby! ...strikes up the band. (laughs) They definitely changed the sound, but boy, they had greater commercial success with Sammy than they ever, ever had with David Lee Roth. It was a whole different vibe, and it was back to the feel-good vibe. I've got another one for you. It's the question that I raise every time I play this song, whether it's on my syndicated show or on our station that we love here in Philly. 
Why can't this be love? What a huge song from this album. And Love Walks In, another song. And both of them are different. Eddie show a different feel inside of himself. It involves more keyboards. These songs and dreams, summer nights, you know, there's a great feel to these songs. It's not that same over-the-top, all-the-time feel from the first two records, say. It's a totally different record, but you're right. There's thinking, there's feeling good. Best of Both Worlds is a great song. Another one that still gets radio play today. And the fact that this album went, what, six songs deep as far as radio play goes, tells yeah, you I a lot. So. It tells yeah. you a lot about the album. They hit four number one albums together, Sammy and the Van Halen guys, and they sold over 27 million records. It's nuts, man. And a lot of people US. said it would never happen. That's true. You know, there were people who just thought, no, nah, this isn't going to work. And they were very wrong. <laughs> uh, when when you get to OU812, the follow-up to 5150, you've got songs like When It's Love and uh, Finish What You Started, which is still some of Eddie's tastiest playing, and it's pretty much straight and clean. Wasn't this... They're still selling millions of records. I know. Bigger shows and better shows. And remember, it's somewhere between 5150 and OU812, which was the Monsters of Rock. That's that's that stretch where I was running into Van Halen a lot. And I can tell you, it was a fun atmosphere. The fun didn't go down when Dave left. The, The guys were really enjoying themselves. And what a, what a great tour. What a great time. Okay, we're doing the Van Halen saga here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And Mr. Goldman, this is the point where I must... It's, it's a long time coming, uh, but I must uh, do my penance. Uh, now, is that right? Oh, my God. Yeah, in June, it'll be 30 years since Van Halen released For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Uh, big album. And, you know, it's the abbreviated, you know, version is fuck. Mm-hmm. My, my partner in crime at FMQB in those days was Mike Boyle. And uh, he listens to the podcast and he'll nod his head as I say, this was an album that when I first heard it made me think of a different curse word. I would have called it shit. I didn't like it. I didn't get it. I didn't think it was going to do that well, and I was all in on the other records. I was friendly with the guys in the band. I really thought that they they had missed something, that something was not right. I was never so happy to be wrong. And um, you really had a time back then where I, I kind of had a cop to it, but never really, you know? And I thought maybe in my mind it was because the Andy Johns feel in production was different and that it just didn't really work for me. I didn't think it was going to work. And Pound Cake proved me wrong, right? You know, Run Around proved me wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right Now proved everybody who felt the way I did wrong. So, oh, top yeah. Top of the world, great songs. Yeah. And a great album from them. Really? And it's, it's funny you mentioned that you weren't into it at first. I didn't like it at first either, and it took me a little while to get into it. All Music gave it two and a half stars. Rolling Stone gave it two and a half stars. Uh, Entertainment Weekly gave it a C. Ultimate Guitar is the only reviewer that really did it solid, gave it like four and a half stars out of five. I wasn't always big on all the critics and who said what and all that, but Robert Criscow, who was working for a magazine called Consumer Guide at the time, 
called it a dud. And that made me feel a little bit better at the time about what I had written about it. And I can't remember what it was. And it wasn't cruel or unkind because I love the band. But I just said what I thought. And uh, I wonder if Mike's now nodding his head going, yeah, I remember when we got called in the office on that. Yeah. <laughs> but boy it's so great to be wrong and, and the thing is over the years you look at the success that it has a number one album in the united states um you know selling millions of copies over the years and mm -hmm. it kept the van halen cycle rolling and other troubles do lead eventually to sammy's departure the last album they did together was balance and it, it didn't seem to have balance no, and um, and I don't know what all the particulars between the fellas were at that point. And the album sold some, you know. Hey, it's Van Halen, triple album. platinum. Yeah, sure, it's it's a Van Halen. There's three million of us who buy everything they do for now and forever. Well, that's the point where the Sammy train pulls out of town, and a lot of people are thinking, what are they going to do? Is there going to be an end to Van Halen or? Uh, are they going to go back to Dave at this point or is there somebody else? And the answer was that they got somebody else and it was somebody else that I mentioned earlier uh, that I knew from his previous band, Extreme. Gary Sharon was the singer on Van Halen 3. And this is... No reflection on Gary. The process had fallen apart for them as a band. Uh, it still was a top five album, you know, mm -hmm. and still sold half a million copies. It just didn't work. And he's gone back to working with Extreme and has done quite well in his life and a really great singer and songwriter. But this really wasn't his thing. And he got drawn into it because it was a great opportunity. How could you or any singer, and I'm no singer, Say no to being invited to join Van Halen. Or at least to audition. That's pretty impressive. All I can tell you is that through all the different permutations in there from the end of Sammy and then Michael going with him and Dave coming around and then they do the thing with Gary and that doesn't work out and then they do a different kind of truth which was actually in some ways a pretty damn good record. It wasn't their best record but... It was better than a lot of us thought it might be when mm -hmm. it was first, you know, rumored that they were putting out an album. I always figure you take your shots until there's no more left, right? And you have no more ideas, stop making music. They didn't sound like they were out of ideas with this. The idea of bringing Dave back gave them some traction. And then what happens on the road after that and since then, it's really, I don't know that we have much to talk about. Uh, there was some negative stuff about the, the last tour, and somewhere in there we heard that Ed was sick, and we mm -hmm. heard about the cancer, and then we heard about it coming back. Mm -hmm. And to lose him made us feel like we had missed doing an episode about him and about Van Halen. We said that, and we thought, yeah. well, let's do this. And the fact that we're releasing this episode in March is also in conjunction with the fact that they released the majority of their albums in March and April. Yes. Kind of is funky how all of these this timing is, because we've been saying for a couple of years now that we want to do a Van Halen episode, and we didn't really know what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. And then he passed away. I hate that away. this is the reason. Yeah. yeah, I hate this is the reason, though, bro. I really do. Um, so I hadn't thought about that. That's a great thought, my friend. 
it won't replace uh, a new Van Halen album. However, it seems Young Wolfgang has figured out that he could probably put his album out in that time frame and do the same. And I think that kid's got a bright future with rock and roll. We're playing a distance right now, and I can't wait to hear the rest of the record. Kid's a very talented musician. I'm so happy. Found a place. Fell in love with it. His family's a showbiz family and a music family, so odds of him doing something in the creative area are a lot higher and more probable than being like an accountant. Yes, I would agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> uh, a different kind of truth featuring Wolfgang on bass, the only album not to have Michael Anthony with mm. young Wolfgang and uh, underlining all that as part of his achievements and the other stuff he did with Mark. You know, he's really set himself up to be uh, a fine representative of the Van Halen moniker. And uh, I wish him nothing but happiness and love moving forward. And great rock and roll, lad. Keep making the great yep. rock and roll. And we also had heard from Wolfgang that had Eddie not declined in his health and the cancer not taken over his body the way it did, there was a good chance that we would have seen a Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony, David Lee Roth, Van Halen, big tour of all of those cats together. I was hoping that they would be able to do before the end because everybody's getting older and at this age we can all bury those old hatchets that are between us and just kind of live those last few years out enjoying the hell out of them without any hatchets. Assholes. Like straight out of landslide, man. And I'm getting older too. True. I just think of the stuff that could have come. Yep. I bet he's got vaults and vaults of music that he's recorded that he's never released that we might be able to see some instrumental or hear some instrumental guitar albums of his. I think that there is something in there. The reason I'm sure of that was that in the weeks following his passing, uh, the family did ask the press and those who are in the know to please stop talking about the vault because we want some time to heal. And I think that that was more than fair on their part, knowing full well that he might even have had a plan. But, you know, I've heard this before. When, when Prince passed, they said, he has a plan. You're going to get a Prince album every year for the next 10 years after he passes away. They're already done. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't. And you don't plan when you're still a man in your 50s or 60s. You don't. Nope. And I'm actually sad that Prince didn't have a plan. I'm hoping that Ed had a plan because he knew he was sick and he knew he had the time. And digital allows you to be a lot more organized. Well, or not, uh, as the case may or may not be. But uh, hopefully there'll be things that we can enjoy as we move forward. Along those lines, I was just listening to, uh, re-listening to The Valleys of Neptune from Jimi Hendrix. I'm going to recommend that. Go find it. Listen to it. You want to hear Jimmy doing Sunshine of Your Love and tearing the roof off it? Go listen to that. And I would say, take some time. Call your mother and listen to some Van Halen. It'll remind you when you're in, you know, your teens and 20s. And maybe even <laughs> younger. Go pull up some of your old Van Halen music and revisit it because you will feel good listening to it. It will bring back some happy times. 
It is a portion of what we do here on the podcast as part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, don't forget, you can always email us with your thoughts on stuff. Even as you're listening, if you think of something, don't be afraid to send us uh, like a couple emails or something to let us know what you're thinking about stuff or things you know that can help us to tell the story better. You just send it to imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Or you can hit us on social media. We've got a Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We've got a Twitter account, Imbalanced Histo. And we're on Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll as well. Go right now to your browser, put in imbalancehistory.com, bookmark it, and stay in touch there too. That's our website. Always to keep us in your loop and to stay in ours here as we continue to adventure together And another one that we've talked about and finally have gotten to do, honoring Van Halen and now their legacy with Wolfie. But that's going to do it for this episode about the great Van Halen from the garages to the world. And it's always fun to talk about them. And I think we do have to have a future episode just about Ed. Maybe back, maybe coming up in October. I think that's a great idea. And we apologize that this is a longer podcast, but there's so much amazing and incredible information about the Van Halen family and so much great music that it's not easy to whittle it down into a short period of conversation. And we weren't leaving the music out. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the imbalance history of Van Halen rock and roll.